I truly believe that uh, uh, we should be looking not just at appellate review, but we should be looking at the whole of the dispute settlement system. Uh, um, so uh, not, yeah, let's not focus on just the appellate body and appellate review. Let's have a look at what we can improve. Um, there has been also, actually, all the DSU reform negotiations uh, that have been going on even oh, before yes. the Doha yeah. round were all focused on uh, consultations a little bit, panel process big time, implementation and enforcement to some degree, but the pallet review, the pallet body, was hardly touched upon at all, yes, uh, except for an Indian idea to go huh, uh, to increase the number of pallet body members. You're listening to the Rodolfo Rivas Project. My dad has had big conversations with other people around the world and here in Geneva. He loves it and he's all crazy about it. Remember to have fun listening to it, the Rodolfo Rivas Project. Thank you for listening. I am Rodolfo Rivas and this is my podcast. You are in for a real treat in this episode. My guest is Professor Dr. Peter Vandenbosch former chairman of the Appellate Body at the WTO and current director of studies at the World Trade Institute in Bern. I met Professor Vandenbosch when I was an intern at the Appellate Body, and since then, I remember being impressed by how knowledgeable and kind he was. I did not know this at the time, but those felt like the golden years of the Appellate Body, and one of the reasons for this was witnessing the high-level work of the Appellate Body members and the Appellate Body secretary. But it's better if you hear this from Professor Vandenbosch. We discuss going into law and stronger with a stronger emphasis on European law, particularly at the European Court of Justice. His interest and focus shifted towards international economic law when he started at the University of Michigan Law School under Professor John Jackson. Eventually, he made his way to the appellate body in the early days, and he tells us a bit about what he experienced during those formative years of the appellate body. He then tells us a bit about the selection process to become a candidate for the appellate body. He then shares some of the significant differences in his experience serving as an appellate body member and serving as part of the Secretariat. He also shares his views on the multi-party interim appeal arrangement, MPIA, and what the future a future appellate body could look like. Lastly, he tells us a bit about his experiences with the WTI and the much-awaited fifth edition of his book, The Law and Policy of the World Trade Organization. We could have talked for hours, and in fact, we did talk for quite a bit after switching off the mic, the mic. So perhaps we will have to do the first, second part episode. It was a great conversation and I was thrilled to talk to Professor Vandenbosch. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Take a listen. Please let us know by liking, and subscribing and or reviewing if you enjoyed this conversation. It really helps. Spreading the word with your friends or even your enemies also helps. The more, the merrier. The Rodolfo Rivas Project is available on all platforms or wherever you get your podcast. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed here belong to the individuals sharing them and do not necessarily represent the views of their employer. Good afternoon, Professor Vandenbosch. Thank you for accepting my invitation. It's a pleasure. So I, you've been covering, you've been working with trade and the WTO for a long time on different capacities. Mm-hmm. I want to hear all about that, but uh, I would like to first start uh, at the beginning. Like, how did you, like, did you always know you were going to become like a, a lawyer, a professor? Um, no. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, no, not, not at all. Um, I studied law at the University of Antwerp. Um, and um, after graduating there, there was no trade law was taught. Uh, it wasn't even part uh, of the course on international law. Um, I was completely ignorant of the GATT, uh, as it was at the time. Um, from from uh, the University of Antwerp, I went to the European University Institute to do a, a doctorate. Um, but but at that time, when you were studying in the in law school, were you interested? Like, what topics were you interested in? Um, international law and European in general. law, okay. and that's why I then went to Florence at the European University Institute to do a doctorate uh, in European law. Um, but during the period I was I was there, um, I interrupted my doctoral studies uh, to do um, an LLM at uh, University of Michigan, yeah. uh, which at the time was really the mecca um, for um, international trade law uh, with John Jackson um, uh, and some others. Um, and um, uh, it was there that I, I, I discovered international trade law. Um, uh, this was new to me. Um, and uh, I ended up working for John Jackson uh, after uh, my LLM studies. Uh, was then called back to do my military service, but, but um, <laughs> uh, and then I, I went back to, to, to Florence to finish my, my PhD, um, which was a PhD in, um, in, in European law. Um, and um, um, so, no, and, and, and from Florence, I, I, uh, I went to the European Court of Justice, yes. um, where I was uh, referendaire, that's a law clerk. Um, uh, that was a very exciting uh, period, um, but European law, yeah. um, little to do with international trade law. But, but I had this, um, this liking for international trade law. Um, um, that the virus had caught me um, in, 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 in Michigan, um, and when I after the court I went into academia and um, I was hired by the University uh, of Maastricht, Maastricht University, uh, to teach European law. Obviously, if you come from the Court <laughs> of Justice uh, in Luxembourg, then it's not normal that they expect you to teach um, European law. Um, but um, the second year I was there, I asked for the de I asked the dean, could I possibly teach also a course in international trade law? Yeah. And the dean at the time, um, I'm still grateful to him, um, but he, he he didn't really have um, uh, an international outlook. Huh? Um, he was a, a criminal lawyer. Um, yes. So we, the first thing I said, but Peter, um, is this something that our students need to know about <laughs> international trade law? Because this was still the gap days. Yes. Um, and I said, uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and he gave me uh, like two years to try it out. Uh, and he would then look at, at, at um, the number of students that registered for the course and the evaluations. And on, on that basis, we might continue. So it was like um, a voluntary? Uh, voluntary? It, yeah, it was completely voluntary. But, but um, And what was uh, the interest? Uh, how many? There was there was considerable interest, um, uh, but as I said, I mean we were still in the GATT days, but but obviously the Eurogroup negotiations were coming towards an end. Um, so uh, there were exciting things to, to, to tell about uh, what the new system would look like, uh, uh, and this is this is uh, uh, how I academically um, then got into the field of, 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 of WTO was teaching that, and uh, um, in the beginning still with with with. Um, primarily teaching uh, both uh, institutional and uh, um, substantive um, European law. But more and more, 
um, certainly when the WTO came into being, uh, more and more there was demand uh, at Maastricht University for um, courses on international trade law. So I, I started teaching less and less European law and more and more international uh, trade law. Um, and of course uh, that was... Uh, and it's, uh, it's uh, because I was teaching then WTO law that uh, uh, and there was a vacancy um, at the then newly established appellate body secretariat um, uh, and uh, John Jackson uh, was asked uh, uh, who could possibly be huh, the person that we might want to encourage to apply because obviously there was, was going to be a competition and um, well, I was lucky he mentioned my name and, and so I was contacted uh, whether I would be interested to apply uh, and I went through the whole selection process with interview with exam and then all that. Um, And yeah, I was lucky. <laughs> and how was uh, the transition? Because you were a full-time academic and then you, you went to work. How was that transition from being a, an academic and teaching to students and then actually being part of the secretariat? <laughs> <laughs> It was a culture shock. <laughs> um, although, I mean, I had worked at the European Court of Justice yeah. um, as, a, as a law clerk and that, that's a pretty similar um, Uh, pretty similar job uh, with that difference that uh, uh, as a law clerk at the European Court of Justice you work for one judge or one advocate general in my case it was an advocate general um, you work just for him or her well at the time there were no hers but, but uh, um, while um, here at the, uh, the appellate body um, uh, the secretariat or a part of the secretariat works for the whole division Uh, on a particular case. Now, in the very beginning, the secretariat was extremely small. We were just four of us. Uh, there was uh, uh, was director, Deborah Steger. Um, there was me as a senior lawyer, uh, and there were two junior lawyers. That's all. <laughs> Compare that with uh, 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 the size of the appellate body, um, even in the time that I was acting director, but, but even more later, uh, the uh, secretariat grew to a size of 25 lawyers, mm-hmm. um, and they needed that. Uh, yeah. But we were terribly understaffed in the very beginning. Um, because, I mean, the, the, this expectation, and you hear that often said, that uh, the negotiators expected uh, appeals to be quite rare. Yeah. Uh, only the worst panel reports would be appealed. Well, the reality is uh, that uh, in these first couple of years, uh, until uh, Japan Film, that was the first panel report that was not appealed. All these other, it was a 100% appeal rate. So that, that was like and a, that a lot of work. Was, was there was a workload for even uh, four. Uh, it was, for. Uh, there's, a, there's a reason <laughs> why after five years I said, no, this is enough. <laughs> uh, I need a sane life. Um, again, like going back to academia, uh, I served in uh, the last eight months, I served still as a acting director um, but uh, of the secretariat. But uh, I had already decided uh, before... Uh, I was asked to take it was over because as of the director. I decided I want to go back to academia. It was because of the workload? Because you, you thought it was... Well, I, to be honest, uh, yes. Um, the other dimension of it is, of course, that after five years, you think you've, mm-hmm. seen, yeah. you've seen it. 
That's, uh, it wasn't correct to think that because <laughs> interesting issues came after that, obviously. But, but no, it was time to, to change. Uh, Family-wise, it was very... I was never home. Um, yeah. I was home, but, but uh, left very early in the morning, came back home very late in the evening. Uh, weekends were virtually always working weekends. Um, so no, it was time to get, as I said, to a saner life. And that was academia. And that was always my dream. I mean, I never saw myself uh, really joining an administration for very long. This was a unique opportunity to, uh, uh, to do this. Huh? And to, because when I arrived at the uh, appellate body, secretariat, uh, the appellate body had finished, finished, finished two reports. Um, they were working on two others, almost finished. And I was not involved in that one, but I then was thrown into the water for the fifth uh, uh, report. Um, so the, the very, very beginning. Uh, so I, I'm curious how, because you were there at the very beginning, How how did the staff manage to shape like the working procedures? Because there was nothing before that. So how was that influenced by, for example, the work at other international bodies of the, like the work from the staff maybe that had been witnessing? I was not involved in this um, because actually that work was done um, by Deborah Stege, who had already been appointed as director of the secretariat. And... Um, Bernard Zutz, um, who was then still working in legal, but was temporarily um, asked to work with Debra on um, the working procedures, uh, drafting them for the newly appointed appellate body members to approve. And that's actually what the very first thing that the appellate body members did. Uh, and then we're still talking uh, 1996, uh, early 1996. The first thing they did was to, to adopt uh, their working procedures um, as the DSU provides for uh, in consultation with the director general and the chair of the DSB. But it was their task to adopt the working procedures. Now that was all done uh, before, um, but yes, Obviously, uh, first of all, there was considerable expertise uh, on that first um, uh, appellate body uh, among the judges. There was considerable expertise with uh, how other courts and tribunals, both European and international uh, and American, uh, worked. Yeah. So all of that was obviously, and, 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 and other uh, courts, uh, like Toy Feliciano had been a, a justice on the uh, Philippine Supreme Court. Um, uh, so, yes, that was all brought in uh, into the discussion. Uh, I think what, what which one should not forget about that first appellate body is that it had relatively few insiders. I mean, yes, there was Julio Lacarte, who uh, was very, very much a GAT person and... Uh, um, Jim Backus, but more from a political, he had worked shortly before for the USTR, huh? so he was also. Um, but others, uh, uh, Mitsuo, yes, huh? he had also published huh, as an academic in the field, but others had no, um, uh, had no previous link with the GAT. Huh? Uh, obviously, nobody had any experience with the WTO because it had recently been established, but with the GAT, very little experience. Huh? Uh, um, so, uh, and I think that also explains that they had a sort of uh, almost fresh look at things. I mean, if, if, if they would have appointed uh, a GAT 
uh, experts, perhaps uh, these working procedures might have been different. Yeah. And, uh, uh, but I think the working procedures that were adopted um, were the proper ones. Um, I mean, people would you know, <laughs> disagree with me, <laughs> but it's the, the, the sort of working procedures that one needs um, for um, a fully functional uh, adjudicative um, appeal tribunal. Um, it's, uh, but you have perhaps other questions about that later. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm just curious because I, I've been talking to some other people from the WTO who were there at the very beginning in different bodies, and I was wondering if they had like some influence, for example, being here in Geneva from the work being done in other organizations. And most of the comments have been that, yeah, they talked to them, but not really, it was not really so much as an influence, it was more what was being developed in house. Yeah, no, I, and I, I would completely agree with that. Um, uh, if you're talking about uh, the organization of the WTO and its secretariat, I think that was primarily based on GATT experience, and, and the GATT um, has always been quite different from other international organizations. Well, it wasn't even formally an organization. Um, yeah. uh, and the WTO continued that tradition, and I think um, it had a and still has, less than before, but it still has its own corporate culture, which is very different from, um, uh, I think, also recruitment and promotions were, um, were much less political um, than uh, I've witnessed uh, in other international organizations. Uh, uh, the way in which people are recruited and even promoted to a higher rank uh, is often on the basis of exams. Yeah. Uh, recruited always, recruitment always. Um, and uh, well, one hears different stories from other organizations um, where all sorts of balances uh, need to be respected. Uh, yeah, it does seem like it's a very professional organization I think in it, that sense. I think, I think it is. Uh, I actually I spoke to, in the podcast with Alan Janovich, and he said that you interviewed him when, <laughs> when he was uh, flying and he successfully Alan, yes, no, no, that was uh, a great hire. Um, <laughs> uh, this is actually uh, when I came back as a Bella Body member, um, uh, many of the staff um, uh, were people that I actually recruited um, or, um, yes, uh, that, that, that uh, were not yet there when. I had recruited, but then only came after I had already left, so I never worked with them. But, but yeah, that was a, a nice thing on coming back. Um, to, uh, and actually, the, the Werner, who was director when I joined the appellate body as a judge, um, I had um, uh, recruited him from uh, legal. Um, so uh, we had a vacancy, and uh, he applied, and uh, I, made, I asked him to apply. <laughs> and uh, he was uh, so, um, yeah. He sometimes says, I mean, you're actually the, the person that is guilty of <laughs> <laughs> um, But that, that was one of the best hires. Uh, but now Alan and, and uh, uh, quite a number of other people. Uh, I, I am curious to, if you can maybe tell us a bit about how was that, how was your, how can you compare your time as working in the Secretariat to your time when you were <laughs> uh, an Apple Body member? What were some of the differences or... Or perhaps like some of the changes that you saw in the time that you were not here? And the difference, uh, uh, well, yeah, um, uh, it's a very different job. <laughs> yeah. Um, as uh, uh, regardless of what some people uh, want others to believe, um, uh, the secretariat <laughs> um, 
may write a first draft, the second draft, the third draft, um, but at the end of the day, um, the hard decisions need to be taken by uh, the appellate body members. Um, so when I was a staff member, I worked extremely hard because they were, they were understaffed. Um, I never regretted that. Huh? Um, I, the, the work was very, very um, uh, interesting. So, But um, uh, at the end of the day, you went home and you gave the best advice possible. Um, you uh, engaged in discussions um, well, more for clarification of what you think uh, the case law says or what you think. But there's a point where yeah, uh, you step back um, and um, you're happy to leave it to, <laughs> to the judges uh, to take the hard decisions. Yeah? Um, and that also goes uh, for uh, the, the drafting of... of the, 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 I mean, in, in any report, there are many paragraphs, but in many reports, um, there are like a limited number of paragraphs that really are uh, uh, very sensitive and very difficult to where well, you go that way or that way. Yeah? Um, and you have to reason it carefully. Well, th these paragraphs, you, you uh, as a staff member, um, you were sitting in the deliberations, which is something that was new to me. Huh? When I came here, uh, I had the experience of the European Court of Justice. There was no way that as a staff member, as a law clerk, you would be allowed to sit in the deliberations. You depended on what your judge, um, when he came back to the offices, uh, what he told you about, uh, or your advocate general, um, that's played a little bit different, but, but uh, what your judge uh, told you as to what was said in the deliberation. Yeah. And then sometimes you contacted the law clerks of the other judges to find out, uh, <laughs> to get a, a complete picture. So I, I, I wasn't used to um, being present at the deliberations at all. Um, but here, uh, as from the very beginning, the staff was, because uh, uh, the staff works for the whole division, um, and that was, that's where you're, you're, you sit in the deliberations, you listen very carefully uh, to what the various positions are, and that you take that home, and overnight you wrote another draft uh, that tried to accommodate uh, the various uh, positions. Um, and then the judges, uh, just as I later on, had no scruples in telling you that you completely misunderstood it um, <laughs> and that this was nonsense and sometimes one of the judges would agree with you and they say oh yeah that's very well put and the other two said no, <laughs> no way <laughs> yeah um, and so you went back and back but at the end of the day you didn't have to take the hard decisions yeah and that was a big difference uh, as an, as an appellate body judge uh, uh, you uh, yeah you had to decide um, and uh, as a staff member, I slept well. <laughs> uh, not much, but <laughs> I slept well. Uh, as an appellate body member, there were uh, nights that you were worrying about, and so tomorrow we really have to come to a decision. And, yeah. uh, my two colleagues are not in agreement. Uh, what could I possibly say to convince them? Uh, where am I myself willing to land? Um, uh, so th this is this is the. Yeah. Uh, an obvious but, but uh, big difference. Now, the other, the other not, dimension not, to no. your question, sorry if I continue on this, yes, but the other yes. dimension of your question um, is this, uh, that the culture of the appellate body had changed a bit. And yes. I think to the, in the very, very beginning, so when I was uh, a staff member uh, of the appellate body secretariat, um, we truly lived in splendid isolation from the rest of the secretariat. And, uh, and this was actually also 
encouraged, if not demanded, uh, by uh, the, the churches. Um, we had lunch um, in the cafeteria, which was still on the fourth floor yeah, uh, at the time. <laughs> um, we had lunch uh, together, just the secretary, and in the beginning there were just four of us. Uh, we mingled only to a very limited extent with the rest of the secretary, uh, and so did the judges. Um, they did not go to receptions of ambassadors. I mean, it was uh, uh, they kept. Um, and um, I think in the beginning that was important um, to. Um, it was important to create this idea of the appellate body as a separate judicial institution. Ah, some people will now be shocked huh, that I refer <laughs> to it as a judicial institution, but I think uh, the yeah. first generation of appellate body members really saw it like that. Yeah. Uh, and they, 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 they wanted to, uh, if you are uh, a separate branch of uh, the total organization, well then keep your distance from the other branches. Now, when I came back... Uh, as a, but it was um, not like a rule or anything, it was just no, something no, that was, was like done. It was more an, um, uh, an understanding, mm -hmm. yeah, and, and uh, there were of course breaches of that understanding, but, but uh, on the whole um, there was little, um, little uh, contact with the rest of the... Uh, um. When I came back, um, Things had changed, and I, th I think for the better. I mean, it was a normal evolution, and there was much more. Uh, the staff, which were at that time already much larger, uh, uh, had much more contacts with the rest of the organization. Uh, we had become appellate body judges, were uh, more outgoing. I, I never went one or two exceptions perhaps, but I never went to receptions um, at embassies because what do they want to talk to about with an appellate body member? Pending cases, yeah. They're not interested in how you spend your weekend uh, <laughs> on the lake. Well, maybe at the beginning, and then it leads to, you know about that pending case. <laughs> uh, exactly. And you can't talk about it, and, and, and it's, it's, it's then embarrassing to, to say, well, I can't talk about this. Yeah? Because yeah. Uh, they should know that you can't talk about it, and that you're not willing to talk about it, not, not even in general terms. Um, so uh, I stayed away from these things. Uh, uh, and in that sense, I kept uh, the distance. But uh, overall, there was more interaction between uh, the branches, huh? probably because the judicial branch was well-established, well-respected, and, and they could afford to, 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 to interact more. Uh, yeah, but for that maybe it was, it was of paramount importance that at the beginning where you were building the culture, that not to do it at that point and then maybe it can evolve. Exactly, you, you, you got that right. Uh, so it was, uh, in that sense, it was something that one had to go through in the very beginning, uh, but, but then when uh, 10, 15 years later, you could relax. Uh, and, and, but this is something that when, uh, when, when, uh, when I came back, <laughs> was, uh, was like in the beginning, and are we doing that? Huh? <laughs> <laughs> what is the staff having lunch with, <laughs> with people from legal who may, ha may have worked on uh, the report that they're reviewing? Huh? Uh, no. <laughs> that, that is... Uh, um, well, they wouldn't have done that, huh? but but I mean, other people in legal, and then, yeah. Uh, so uh, people were it was a bit more relaxed, and I think for the better, uh, because one of the the problems uh, may have been uh, that we took there was too much distance. But again, I don't want to contradict myself. Huh? I think in the beginning it was very justified, but uh, when I came back in 2009, uh, things were um, fortunately more relaxed. This is what I wanted a bit to understand a bit more, not so much. I was not referring so much to the working procedures, but more about the way that the shaping of the culture and the work like move through work through the years. Because 
you were there at the beginning, then you left, but then like you you were able to see that change and were you were you able to make comments or perhaps you say like we didn't do that like some years ago and were those influential or were just like yeah now things have changed well i think um every appella body member when he joins um and then after joining um you you have your ideas of how um the work should be yeah. done um uh what you expect from the secretariat um uh, i think we all came with 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 our ideas and 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 this was openly discussed and sometimes there were heated debates on, on this huh? um uh, i think i had the advantage um uh, having worked as a secretariat member myself um um and and also my experience at the european court of justice um made me i i, I think um in in my experience um the secretariat uh, played its played a very proper role. Yeah. Um and um given the complexity of the cases, um uh given the fact that um uh, early onwards they had decided uh not to work with individual law clerks for every appellate body member but to have a secretariat um which was something that they probably not probably that they copied from what happened at the panel stage. Um uh I think uh, if you take these things into account uh, I think that the role played by the secretariat was in my mind um always very um appropriate um did they decide the cases now definitely not <laughs> yeah and I I I I more often disagreed um than agreed with with the secretariat um perhaps I should correct that um I often agreed um because the analysis was just good but but not always yeah um and um but any dependent on what my colleagues did uh, whether they agreed or not um uh but uh, uh but I think we had uh different views on on uh what the role of the secretariat should be yeah? um and um uh but that didn't trouble me because the secretariat always had uh both when well when I served as a member of the secretariat I had no say in it but when I was a judge the sec- the secretariat always performed the role that I thought was proper to be yeah. perform um I never felt intimidated um if the secretariat took <laughs> one view um fact, in degree I made that clear huh? um uh actually I I can attest to that because I met you when when you were an appellate body member I was an intern at the appellate body and I was I was actually pretty shocked to as an intern sit in the discussions like, like you said <laughs> but I, I to me that was like fantastic and I I can say that sometimes you agreed sometimes no but yeah. it was not like um it was not like a there was a dialogue oh yeah no yeah. no no I I think uh nine years um uh almost all discussions were dialogues yeah um and um yeah Uh now if you are debating one single issue for a whole week by Friday tempers sometimes are a bit short. <laughs> can't say more about it because I can't reveal the secrets of the deliberation but but um yeah uh, but but uh, we always had I think I'm sure uh, a lot of respect for each other the fellow body members uh, um, and uh, so even if we sometimes argued um, strongly um uh and the meeting was over uh we went to have uh, dinner together um, and then uh well, perhaps in those cases we really insisted on having dinner together too <laughs> uh, to uh, see each other again as um 
uh, not opponents, but as colleagues, um, trying to reach the best, um, the best solution possible. Um, I, I am curious to hear your thoughts because when I was an intern at the appellate body, there seems to be there seemed to be like a ranking. Like if you were uh, an intern with legal affairs and you were certain level, if you was an intern in the appellate body, you felt also like oh, I'm intern at the appellate body. Was that also something that perhaps you think permeated like? in the organization that the appellate body was seemed like something more higher and that perhaps I don't know led to some of the concerns um, when I was a staff member uh, rightly or wrongly um, but we considered ourselves uh, first of all very privileged yeah. uh, to work for uh, these appellate body members uh, secondly we felt privileged uh, to um, work on these cases and uh, uh, contribute to what thought would be the final decisions. Um, and um, yes, I think uh, uh, we also felt um, that um, um, uh, we were perhaps, um, uh, uh, better is a, a wrong word, <laughs> but let's say more privileged yeah. um, than, 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 than other people working in the broader secretariat. Um, uh, we thought, and I think many people in the building thought, uh, that we got to do extremely exciting work. Uh, even compared with rules and legal, because um, there they have to dig into the facts and, and, and that. So we could go to the legal issues, yeah. um, unless there was, of course, an Article 11 claim vis-a-vis <laughs> -vis, um, factual findings. But, but uh, for a lawyer, yeah, I mean, the most exciting thing is, is to be involved in that. Uh, and um, yeah, um, so <laughs> I think, uh, and also our interns, I mean, you, you testify of that. Uh, they felt like uh, <laughs> well, I, slightly I, above the other interns. Well, I, that is something that it, it kind of was like natural. Like before I joined the WTO, I was not really aware of that, but I think that it was even perpetuated by the same organization, not so much the members of the w, of the appellate body, but even the others that they used to believe, ah, they're with the appellate body, they're in a different place yeah. and everything. But let's face it, there was a, there was a, 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 there's another side to the coin, yeah? um, and that is that um, uh, as an appellate body member staff, as an, appoli, an appoli, appellate body, <laughs> Um, staff member, uh, you worked very long hours and you worked weekends. Yeah, I remember coming to the office during the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but at the time, I thought that was normal. I was, I was, I was here on the first of January, uh, 1999. No, eight. 1998, first of January, and I came straight from a plane. I landed in Geneva, eight o'clock. Nine o'clock, I was standing here before the door um, because uh, uh, the chair of the division um, wanted to meet. I was uh, on holidays break in New York with uh, my family-in-law. I was phoned two days before New Year um, with the request to come back because the chair of the division wanted to meet. Um, and in a building which was very cold because it had been closed down, <laughs> The two of us, because I was the chief senior lawyer on the case, um, and the chair uh, went through the draft the whole day. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm still uh, trying not to feel as fall asleep because I had flown through the night. <laughs> um, no, um, that's the other side of the coin. Yeah, uh, and yes, we also uh, were very demanding to our interns, as you may have experienced. Um, this is, uh, yeah. 
Um, but I, but that, that's, I mean, I mean, certainly in the other legal divisions, uh, uh, rules and and, um, and legal, uh, they did very good work too. Huh? Let, let me not. Uh, and quite a number of people working in legal uh, did make that came to the appellate body at one point. Um, uh, the, the last director, uh, Werner, uh, is an example of that, but he's not the only one. Um, it's um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't. I don't want to dwell too much on this. I think you actually have told us a lot about this. But I just, I'm curious as to when you went back to academics after after having been at the secretariat, what was the process like in your mind to decide to come back as an appellate body member? Oh, that, that was <laughs> um, when I left here in 2001 um, uh, as acting director of the secretariat. Um, there was there was no intention to come back. Uh, and I, I, I think <laughs> uh, anybody who sort of has it in his career or her career plan to become an appellate body member, um, no. I mean, this is not something that... that, that, that uh, uh, but I was, I was working as an academic in the field and I had published the first and second edition of my Law and Policy of the WTO uh, uh, with Cambridge University Press. Uh, um, I was doing a lot of capacity building work, um, which definitely helped me to get um, to get the uh, support in Africa among African members because uh, and 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 uh, Asian members. Uh, my wife uh, was Ecuadorian, um, so. <laughs> Uh, but no, uh, out of the blue, um, uh, my secretary at the University of uh, Maastricht uh, was contacted by the Belgian uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs um, with the request that I would contact them. And she told me, and I said, what do they want? Uh, uh, because I, I worked a lot for the Dutch Ministry of Foreign Affairs, but Belgium wasn't really... So I, I contacted them, and, and uh, then I was asked whether I, I was uh, willing to consider um, a, a nomination, that they would nominate me at a European level. Because uh, a process, as from my, my process meant that... Uh, It was different in the beginning uh, because those then uh, individual member states of the European Union uh, advanced their candidates to the whole WTO membership. Now uh, it was then decided that they would follow a different procedure that uh, uh, the European Union would um, would propose would nominate um, two or three people, um, and that uh, there would be an internal European competition uh, first. So participating in that internal competition, I must say that the interview, the exam. <laughs> Uh, there was the toughest of all these. <laughs> that was really uh, at the commission uh, with commission representatives, uh, lawyers, and and, uh, and also uh, a representative of the Council uh, of the European Union. Um, that was really very tough. Um, but surprise, surprise, uh, I was then informed that uh, I uh, would be nominated together with uh, a dear friend, um, Peter Jan Kuyper, who I had known uh, for a long time, who was then director. Um, and director uh, uh, at the Commission, um, European Commission. Um, so um, we uh, we competed um, here uh, in Geneva. Uh, did the rounds of. Uh, we did not do what what others had to do, and that is to fly from one capital to another, huh? um, uh, fly all over the world and present. Um, we agreed that we would not do that. Um, also because the European Commission was not going to pay for it, they made that clear, <laughs> unlike <laughs> governments. Um, so uh, we decided not to do that. And the only, uh, they only insisted on us 
that we presented ourselves in Washington, uh, which we then both did. Um, uh, but uh, for the rest, we, we met many ambassadors here, in, uh, uh, which was all very well organized by the European Commission in a neutral way. Uh, the European Commission didn't take, uh, didn't indicate any preference for me or for Peter Jan. Uh, and uh, uh, then the membership, in its wisdom, decided that, uh, that I would be appointed. Um, so um, the rest is history. Um, <laughs> but, um, so it's... Uh, no, but I mean, one does not plan for this sort of thing. It's, it's uh, and especially after you said that it was a lot of work. You're like, I don't want to do that again. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, um, that's exactly what my wife at the time said. Um, Are you sure you want to? I said, Well, it's different. Yes, it was different, <laughs> but <laughs> um, in, in a way, even more taxing than uh, than being on the staff. Um, but I think that your experience is particular interesting because you saw it from different angles oh, yeah. you saw it from both and you can see you could see the difference and you could even like I don't know whether the staff always appreciated that um, because I, I knew all the tricks <laughs> Yeah. or the excuses um, that I used to come up with for a paper that was not finished or the draft that was... I knew all the tricks, um, so um, couldn't play that with me. Um, but no, but at the, on the other hand, I was... That's a more serious comment. Uh, I was also very understanding of the challenges that a secretariat faces yeah, uh, in uh, giving the best support possible uh, to a division. Because yeah. uh, I had been there myself. Yeah. So, uh, um, yeah. Uh, I had been one of them, which I also sometimes pointed out. Uh, I understand you, <laughs> but uh, uh, we now need this, this and this, and we need to have it done uh, by tomorrow. Before we, uh, because I want to talk a bit about your work at the WTI, before we go into that, I'm also curious to hear your thoughts on, well, you've seen the concerns. What are your thoughts on how you see the potential like, reform that would uh, be... Uh, potentially addressing some of these concerns, and in the same light, uh, how do you see the MPIA? Um, chances of reform of uh, the dispute settlement system, chances of reform of the appellate body, so that things would... Uh, well... Or what are some of the elements that you see must be there? For, st well, for starters, uh, uh, since uh, Ambassador Walker did uh, this, this impressive work on his principles uh, on the draft uh, general council decision, uh, which I, I, I really think was, was impressive uh, to get all but uh, one <laughs> member on board. Um, uh, uh, since uh, that document, um, which was also then, of course, influenced by many communications, I've never seen so many countries coming out with views on mm -hmm. what the appellate body should uh, should do, what they should not do. Uh, but since uh, that time, um, very, very little new has been put on the table. Um, and I think it's because everybody realizes that as long as the United States is not willing to engage um, in uh, a debate on the kind of dispute settlement system that they want, nothing will move. Yeah. At least not huh? uh, in the current system. Huh? Uh, that's comment number one. Comment number two is um, I truly believe that uh, uh, we should be looking not just at appellate review, but we should be looking at the whole of the dispute settlement system. Uh, um, so uh, it's not, yeah, let's not focus on just the appellate body and appellate review. Let's have a look at what we can improve 
um, there has been also actually all the DSU reform negotiations uh, that have been going on even before the Doha yeah. round were all focused on uh, consultations a little bit, panel process big time, implementation and enforcement some degree, but the panel review, the panel body, was hardly touched upon at all, uh, except for an Indian idea to go huh, uh, to increase the number of appellate body members. Uh, I, I don't remember any proposal. Huh? There was a proposal, I think, by the U.S. on making it more like a, like a Supreme Court with clerks at one point. Yeah, but was that was, uh, indeed? Yeah, um, uh, and there was also a proposal to uh, introduce interim review yeah. uh, of appellate body reports. Now, we'll try to do that in 90 days, but but. Um, uh, I'm not even sure whether the proposal that you refer to, which was indeed made by the United States, whether that was whether that was officially part of uh, the DSU reform proposals. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. I'm not. I'm not sure. But I'm, I yes. Yeah. But compare. But, but you're right. Like all of the, the mass of other not be focused on the upload body. No. Uh, and and then compare it with the mass of other proposals on all the other aspects. Huh? And now virtually nothing was done huh, with all these ideas uh, on. Forming the panel president, some things were done internally, but but uh, uh, it didn't lead to any major reform. Yeah, um, so I, I think let's also uh, get much of that back on board. Yeah, um, and and uh, if we have to look at uh, at, at the, the, the new dispute settlement system, let's look at the total picture. Yeah, including um, remedies for breach, because I think. One of the major shortcomings, I've said as an academic many times, but one of the major shortcomings of this system is that you get away with murder. Huh? Yeah. Uh, you breach the rules, you say, sue me. Huh? And then, uh, certainly in the field of trade remedies, by the time that there is a final, final uh, ruling, uh, that, that, that anti-dumping duty uh, or that countervailing duty may not be needed anymore. Um, and so you would actually almost be happy to withdraw it. Um, it completely goes against um, basic rules uh, of international law, custom international law, that you do not have to repair the damages that you cause uh, through an illegal act. Now, okay, I mean, I know there are all the arguments. Then. The, the DSU contracts out of that part of uh, that part of um, of uh, customary international law, but I think it's a it's a mistake. I mean, just to illustrate, I, I think we should look at the whole package. Yeah. yeah? Now, this is a very radical thought that I put on the table because <laughs> uh, um, this is not part of uh, what most members would find acceptable. But I think it would would be a better dispute settlement system if you can't get away with murder. Yeah? Um, but all of that, uh, this discussion is not going to take place unless the United States is willing to engage. Yeah. And I don't think that... Uh, uh, for those who thought at the beginning with the Biden administration, that the Biden administration obviously is more multilateralist in mind, and, and they show that also in the other fields, in generally in the trade field, much, much less. Yeah? And in terms of dispute settlement, not at all. Yeah? Uh, and I think they can't afford... Uh, I mean, uh, we'll have midterm elections next year, uh, trade, and any concession on WTO dispute settlement um, is not a winner, on yeah. the contrary. Um, so I, I see no, uh, I don't see the United States engaging in serious discussions um, on, uh, on the appellate body, or even larger WTO dispute settlement, for quite some time. So what is the way forward? Well, the MPIA. Uh, 
Now, people would say, yes, but there are only 25 WTO members that have signed up for the moment. No, that's the wrong calculation. It's actually 25 plus 27, 27 member states of the European Union. So that gets it already huh, more than 50. That's one third of the membership. Yeah, yeah. almost one third of the membership. Um, there are, of course, important users of the system that are still not on board. I think uh, they have different reasons not to be on board. Um, I think under the Trump administration, some countries were just afraid of uh, what the Trump administration would do with them if they signed up to this. Yeah. Um, I think that fear is much less present uh, now with the Biden administration. Um, so that is something that changed. Another thing that changed that some of the WTO members did not sign up, um, did not sign up uh, the MPIA. Um, because they said, um, well, uh, this will um, will hinder, will make uh, the negotiations on reactivating the appellate body more difficult because there's an alternative. Yeah. So let's not get involved in this. But I think more and more they will realize that, that uh, there will be no negotiations on uh, fixing the problem with the appellate body. At least not. Um, and therefore they will say, well, what, what do we do? Mm-hmm. So I think... I'm hopeful that more and more um, WTO members will sign up um, uh, for the MPIA or, and that's also a possibility, um, will um, opt for uh, the MPIA on an ad hoc basis. Yeah? And I would say, well, um, you would do that when you're, you're complainant, huh? Huh? then you'd say. But just imagine that there is a, a dispute with the European Union, the European Union as a, uh, as a respondent, and uh, the complainant, not um, a member of the MPIA, another party to the MPIA, would offer um, to the European Union to, in the beginning of the panel proceedings, would say, okay, uh, we're willing to, uh, on an ad hoc basis, uh, to apply the MPIA system, uh, uh, perhaps not completely as it is, but but still, uh, under Article 25, uh, to have arbitration along the same lines, uh, so that there is um, a final decision on appeal. I would find it very surprising if the European Union would then say, oh no, no, no. Yeah. Not in a case in which we're a respondent. <laughs> yeah. um, they might, yeah, they might, because uh, it's a bit uh, cherry picking of the other uh, country, because uh, in cases in which they would be the respondent, yeah, of course they would not uh, go for the MPIA. Um, and of course, that if you become a party to the MPIA, you're bound, <laughs> uh, um, that even if you're a respondent, uh, to accept the MPIA. Uh, role when there is an appeal. Um, but, but okay, it's a long story to say that I am hopeful um, that uh, um, that the MPIA will um, will be a gap filler uh, for some time. Uh, and um, to be quite honest, um, if um, if the Biden administration now all of a sudden uh, signals a willingness to talk about. Um, the functioning of the appellate body and then what should be changed and then uh, uh, I would be somewhat worried um, that the negotiations would then lead to a dispute settlement system, an appellate review system that I would not consider to be worth having. So, um, uh, because some people may think something is better than nothing. Yeah. Yeah? Some, some WTO members, may, perhaps Brussels would say, well, okay, huh, we compromise on this, we compromise on that. Huh? But the outcome, because I think the United States would still be on a very demanding track. And uh, so perhaps it's best not to <laughs> to try and have the MPIA um, 
continue much of what the appellate body did, uh, although they will have their own take to it. Um, I, um, I'm, I'm really uh, waiting to see the MPIA arbitrators to do their first couple of cases. Yeah, that's what uh, we, we're all waiting for. <laughs> um, I mean, uh, one of the cases they will have uh, is CBAM. Huh? Uh, Australia is very, very much opposed huh, to CBAM, uh, saying everywhere huh, that this is WTO inconsistent. I don't know the only ones, huh? but Australia. Uh, the European Union, well, uh, they're both MPIA members, so if this goes through the panel stage and uh, the European Union, if they lose, huh, uh, uh, they might, well, they cannot appeal into the void, <laughs> huh? um, but they, they will then have to uh, go to the um, MPIA uh, to do that in 90 days, yeah, which is what the MPIA yeah. Um, says that they should do to do that um, without the secretariat because this is going to be a massive case yeah. Yeah. Um, and then they refer to uh, investment arbitration yeah? uh, where there's also no huh, uh, secretariat well because it has a secretariat but, but uh, doesn't really fill the doesn't have the same function as the appellate body secretariat or even uh, the legal and, and rules how they help panels but what they forget is that uh, <laughs> that um, investment arbitrators um, get a fee out of which you can pay for assistance and that's what they do part of the fee goes to the existence and that's not the case for NPIA arbitrators who get paid as panelists get paid um, uh, also no retainers um, so it will really be uh, a labor of love um, yeah. um, but to do that in 90 days I mean that, that, that's uh, possibly their first case will be one that is doable in 90 days depending on how many issues will be appealed but what would you do if you're the litigator for uh, the appellant <laughs> you try out everything yeah <laughs> yeah um, yeah, that's why it's important to see what happens in the first one and then see... Yeah, yeah, but the first one, they may be lucky and that's perhaps not that big a case. Um, although, I just said that as, a, as an appellant, you would probably appeal everything you don't like. Huh? If you're going to the appellate body, to the, to the MPIA tribunal anyway, so why not? Uh, yes, okay, I agree with you. It's very important to see what happens in the first case um, and then uh, what happens when they really get the big cases that, yeah. that will come. CBAM will come. Yeah. Uh, but uh, so I think uh, uh, I have the greatest admiration for, the, uh, for those that have been appointed arbitrators. I mean, it's a really very, impressive yeah. uh, group. Uh, uh, but I. Many of them have, have vast panel experience, um, so that helps. But I think that uh, um, it's pretentious of me to say that, but that reality will kick in. Yeah? Uh, well, you, you were there at the beginning of the appellate body, so you saw how, <laughs> how it is. Yeah, there will be uh, a version of that. It's, um, so it's, it's, uh, um, but I, I put my hope uh, on the MPIA, yeah. uh, and I think we all should uh, for the time being. Um, I, well, this has been fascinating. I just want to hear a bit more about the WTI and your work there, uh, because I think that the WTI is a very important institution that trains a lot of the people that work in the WTO, in trade, in ministries across, across the world. What is your role and why, why did you decide to go there after the appellate body? 
Um, well, I'm currently a director of studies um, at the WTI, which uh, makes me uh, responsible for all our um, educational programs, um, both on-site and um, uh, off-campus. Uh, educational programs can be master programs, uh, it's also our PhD program, but it can also be capacity building uh, programs. Um, that's a fairly large but very interesting portfolio. Um, uh, what attracted me uh, in the WTI is, is, first of all, I had been teaching um, dispute settlement um, uh, for 18 years, I think. Um, there's one or two years that I couldn't make it because uh, the pillow body work uh, intervened. But uh, for 18 years, I was there uh, for one week, one full week um, every year. So I, I knew the WTI very well. Uh, I've always been a great admirer of Thomas Gautier. Um, so, um, uh, when uh, they were looking for a director of studies uh, and a, a full professor of international uh, economic law, um, I, uh, I was very interested and, and uh, the university uh, was fortunate for at the university and decided to appoint me. Uh, what attracts me, apart from the fact that I already knew them and that I had contacts there, is, is uh, the interdisciplinary uh, approach, um, which is something I sometimes miss elsewhere, um, or elsewhere they claim to be interdisciplinary, but it's still then various departments working together. Whereas the WTI, um, we are interdisciplinary. Uh, there's law, there's economics, there's political science, and there's a full professor in each of these disciplines, and then we, uh, in the various disciplines, there are also associate professors, uh, and we work um, really closely together. Um, and I think this is, this is also <laughs> the way in which I, uh, I talk to potential students. I say uh, to the law students, I say, well, you will have a hard time at the WTI uh, with the economics topics. Uh, I would have a hard time with them. I looked at the <laughs> syllabi. <laughs> Fortunately, I don't, they don't have to. But, 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 but it's something that I missed. I mean, in my law studies, we had very, very little uh, economics, let alone uh, international economics. Uh, and uh, so uh, I think if you want to train as a lawyer uh, in this field, you need to get a very proper basis um, in economics, international mm -hmm. economics. Um, and that's what we give uh, in our uh, master programs. In our research, uh, we have the luxury uh, to be able to put together uh, with people that have offices next to each other in one unit. Uh, we can do research uh, on many of the topics that, that really require an interdisciplinary uh, approach. And that, that has attracted me to the WTI. Uh, so it was not, I mean, it was a difficult choice in the sense that uh, a, a Maastricht was really my uh, in a way, my, my academic, the academic love of my life. Uh, yeah. and, and I owe a lot to Maastricht University. Uh, it was not easy then. I still teach there, but, but not on a permanent basis. Uh, but um, yeah, uh, this was a challenge I could not, uh, not say no to. Uh, well, and lastly, I think that uh, the fifth edition of the, w, the law and trade policy of the World Trade Organization is coming at the end of the year? Yeah, well, uh, no, no, actually... Uh, even earlier, earlier. Um, uh, the fifth edition, and 
Thank you. <laughs> you allowed me to no, say because, that. because I, I want um, to. I, of course, like that's one of the references books, and I would want to see. No, no, it, it's uh, the fifth edition. Um, uh, should be on the market on at the end of this month. At the end of this month, yeah, even uh, okay. fifth edition of the Law and Policy of the World Trade Organization. Uh, at any any university press. Um, yeah. Any um, special like uh, oh, changes oh. <laughs> that you want to highlight? Um, well, unfortunately, the book is again longer than the previous edition. Um, uh, it's now a thousand, uh, well, end pages. Um, and every edition uh, has about 20% new text. So it's actually, there's 20% is about 200 pages, 250 pages. So it's, it's every time, in a way, a new book. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, uh, although the fourth edition uh, uh, was 2017, so that's not that long ago. Um, certainly taking into account that the cutoff date uh, for this edition was October 2020. Uh, we, we did uh, incorporate um, uh, um, some of the more recent political developments, and so the Biden administration, that's up to February 2021, okay. uh, that we take that into account. Uh, the production process of a book like this, uh, certainly if you have a, uh, a very careful uh, publisher as Cambridge University Press, takes a long time. Yeah. Uh, but um, uh, now there's uh, all the, the recent case laws in there. Um, and in a way, um, <laughs> in a strange way, uh, we've been lucky with the paralysis of the appellate body because since, since uh, well, of course, we, we had still the, after December 2019, we still had, we still had uh, uh, the um, Australia tobacco plane packaging case, uh, which we dealt with, um, but there has been very little since. Huh? Very little panel reports have come out, uh, and all but one of the panel reports that came out were built into the void. Huh? So you have to be somewhat careful as to how much importance you give them. But even if you do give them importance, uh, and we do, huh? we, we do refer to them, uh, no, there's no date of adoption behind the name of the but brackets, and uh, <laughs> so clearly indicating that their appeal is pending. Um, but there haven't been that many. Um, yeah, so it's so up to date, up almost to. <laughs> it's, uh, and I'm afraid that even if the MPIA picks up, um, uh, this will be a slow process. Yeah. Uh, so it will allow so you to review it in <laughs> many more years. <laughs> well, um, uh, if you ask me at this moment, will there be a sixth edition? The, the fifth edition is still too fresh in my memory. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, ask me in a year or so, um, okay. when I forgot the, the misery of, of producing a new edition, then uh, probably I will. Uh, but it will... The need will, I mean, the evolution will, uh, because unless we get uh, spectacular new results on the negotiating front, uh, things will move slower. Well, thank you, Professor Vandenbosch. It has been a pleasure. Very Thank well. you for your time. Thank you very much. This was the World Alpha Rivas Project. I hope you loved it. Can you dig